I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, David Wallace, is a philosopher of science at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in the philosophy of physics. He is interested in emergence and reductionism, structural realism, decision theory, and especially the Everett interpretation of quantum theory, often called the many worlds interpretation. His book on that topic entitled The Emergent Multiverse was published in 2012. He's also the author of The Philosophy of Physics, A Very Short Introduction, published in 2021. David, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us first about your background and how you were drawn to the philosophy of physics after having studied theoretical physics at the University of Oxford. Both areas seem extraordinarily abstract. Just curious how you choose one over the other. Theoretical physics seems a little too practical. <laughs> the, the serious answer was that my research interests increasingly became conceptual, less directly calculational, less connected to experiment, more connected to trying to understand the structure of the physical theories we had. The nature of the way physics as a discipline is structured in Britain and America means if you're doing that kind of research, particularly early in your career, it can be difficult to make a career of it. For reasons that are good or bad, you can argue about it, then the, the academic process in those subjects tends to focus on things that are somewhat more concrete, somewhat more connected to experiment or at least to calculation. So my move across from physics to philosophy was more an institutional shift than a shift of my interests. The kind of subjects I was interested in as a physics graduate student are still the subjects I'm interested in as a philosophy professor and in a somewhat different academic system, I might still be in a physics department. Okay, so you, your uh, definition of practical is, is probably a bit more uh, narrow than, than most people. I, I was joking. <laughs> I know. Okay, so before we get too lost in theoretical physics um, or the philosophy thereof, let's first talk about the philosophy of science. What is the appeal of this subject for different audiences, philosophers, scientists, and the general public? Sure. So I think the starting point to realize is science is... I was about to say the foundation of how we understand the world, but it's more than that even these days. It's the foundation of our entire society. If you look at the fraction of our modern society's economy that's built on the um, consequences of science, it's pretty much all of it. And if you look at the kind of key issues in the world going forward, whether they're extremely intellectual, esoteric questions like the origin of life or the origin of the universe, or extremely practical questions about climate change and artificial intelligence. These are all things where use science, we need to understand science, we need to understand the scope of science and the limitations of science. And if you look at the recent pandemic, you see how critically important it can be for us as a society, decision makers, academics themselves, and the general public to have some understanding of what science is doing, what the scientific method is, to what extent scientific results can be trusted. I think one of the things that's in the popular culture about science is somehow that science is in the business of delivering infallible results, and that if science claims something is true, either it's true or it shouldn't be believed because scientists can't be trusted. And a huge amount of understanding what 
science really is, understanding science as a fallible but self-correcting process and understanding what kind of confidence we ought to have in scientific results, how to know which bits of science are reliable, to know how to communicate science. And scientists themselves need to understand these things as we live in a more and more interconnected scientific community where people need to take results from very disparate scientific groups and use them in their own research. I think that one of the key phrases you used just now is fallible yet self-correcting. That's really important concept that I think you're suggesting, and I agree with you, that the general public doesn't quite understand that, or at least a large swaths of the general public, that they, they see science as somehow establishing facts that are then unchallengeable. And of course, the nature of science is that it's always challengeable. Some things are harder to challenge than others because they're, they rest on such powerful evidence. But there's an awful lot of science where the evidence is sh shaky at best. Yeah, and the theory that the Earth goes around the sun is looking pretty solid, for instance. I'm not expecting experimental evidence to contradict that anytime soon. But yeah, the theory that uh, diseases are caused by virus and bacteria is pretty solid, but of course the details of that are complicated. We are really very confident now that COVID was caused by SARS-CoV-2 SARS virus. We're confident that it have been for a long time that AIDS is caused by HIV, but those were fallible discoveries in their time. We didn't know that the continents moved until 50 or 60 years ago. We're still very unsure about the early structure of the universe, to take a physics example. We're reasonably sure we've got the broad details right, but they're nothing like as solid as does the Earth go around the sun. And as you say, absolutely, it's always possible that something can come along and, and challenge that in a really profound way. And I think it's difficult, you were talking about the general public, it's a difficulty in the way we explain and teach science to the public that it's what we tend to teach is very focused on the outputs of science which is understandable those are mostly the interesting bits but less focused on on the degree of uncertainty about those outputs to give a minor example a few years ago i was in a, a museum that had a display about the early universe and if you read box by box it was telling you about the universe at successively late times if you're paying attention, you notice there was a gap in the story. I, I forget exactly what it was, where they didn't explain some part and then they just went smoothly on to the next part. And I happen to know the reason they didn't explain it was because we just, just don't know the answer to that quest, that particular bit of the history of the universe. And I thought, what a lost opportunity to just say in the display, scientists don't know this yet, but they're working on it. And I think it would be good if we could be better in, in public education at communicating those sort of Yes, you were saying that science education often emphasizes that maybe not quite the right things. Is that what you're implying? Lots of science education is excellent, but it's often education about the, the results obtained by science. And you don't often get a lot of information about what the scientific method looks like, certainly not in the way science gets communicated to the general public. And, and I would imagine that the philosophy of science uh, explores the assumptions upon which the scientific method and the whole scientific enterprise rests. In, in a kind of synopsis kind of way, what is that method? What are the assumptions? And what are we struggling to understand about those assumptions? So working out just what the scientific method is, is one of these areas where there's a lot more disagreement than agreement. Scientists themselves all talk about a scientific method, but there's not much consensus among themselves about just what things exactly count as scientific and not scientific and how much commonality there is between academic disciplines. Um, 
the philosopher of science, Jerry Fodor, has a line that the scientific method is try not to say anything false. Um, but if you want to be a little more methodical about it, a lot of the literature and philosophy of science is successive departures from Popper's picture of what the scientific method was. Um, so perhaps just to say briefly. That's Karl Popper, right? That's Karl Popper, yeah. Just to say briefly something about that. This is, and this is caricatured history. You might get the right idea. You, if you're asking, like, how does one learn about the world? So one, one thing you might imagine is that you just you sit there, you gather observations, and eventually generalize them. I've dropped a pen, and it fell to the ground. I've dropped something else, and it fell to the ground. Everything I drop falls to the ground, and somehow that's how you discover gravity. Popper observed that didn't really get at the nature of what science was doing. He distinguished between what gets called the context of discovery, how you come up with scientific theories in the first place, and the context of justification, how you test scientific things. And Popper's position was that there's not much of a systematic method in how you come up with good ideas. You know the information, you have ideas, you have theories you already have, you conjecture something that might work. But what really matters is the rules for testing that conjecture. So for Popper, what makes something scientific is that it's testable. And by testable, what Popper meant is falsifiable. There's some observation you could make that would show it was wrong. So the reason everything falls to the ground when you let go of it counts as a scientific theory, albeit a very rudimentary one, is that you could falsify it. You could drop something and, it, and find that it doesn't fall to the ground, and now you know it's not true. And that's how science progresses. And in fact, that silly made-up example is very easily falsified. Take a helium balloon and let it go, and up it floats. So it's not true that everything you drop falls to the ground. And more sophisticated laws of gravity of the kind that Newton came up with are also falsified, much more substantially falsifiable. They make lots and lots of detailed predictions about the way bodies move. And then you can go and check and find, actually, no. What Newton's theory says about the movement of the planet Mercury is this, but we look carefully and it's that. So it turns out that a Mercury isn't really following the law of gravity, so it turns out the law of gravity is false. And so in Popper's way of thinking about it, that's how we reject Newton's law of gravity and indeed moved on to Einstein's gravity. So that's Popper's sense of what the scientific method was. It gets a great deal right, and what we now think is it also gets quite a lot wrong, or at least quite a lot wrong in detail. And a lot of the development of our understanding of the scientific method in the last 60 or 70 years has been getting a more sophisticated version that holds on to that basic insight that we want to come up with theories and then test them and reject them if they fail the test, while recognizing the ways in which it's oversimplified. So I think one thing you're implying here, though you didn't mention it by name, is the difference between deduction and induction. So deduction meaning something that's logically has to be true. I didn't really imply that. That sometimes that, that came up sometimes in some of the philosophy of science discussions. I, I'm not sure what you have in mind really. That that is an important distinction. But what well, perhaps, perhaps perhaps a point to draw from this is that it's certainly true that no amount of evidence we see in the world is going to totally reliably tell us facts about other parts of the world we haven't looked at yet. So it's certainly true that any time we make a scientific theory or any time we make a prediction based on a scientific theory, we're sticking our necks out. We're committing to things we can't know absolutely certain to be true. 
But it has to be said that there are essentially no things we can know with certainty to be true. So reflection is not so clear that science is... Right, except things that are deduction. So, for instance, if a country, if you already predefine something, for instance, that uh, all countries have boundaries, the United States is a country, the United States has boundaries. I mean, that, that's kind of trivial, but that, that would be an example of deduction. Whereas induction is, you know, the last 999 times I went to feed my dog, it bit me in the hand. The next time I feed it, it will bite me in the hand. That's induction, and it's not necessarily true. It's just you have a fair degree of confidence when something's happened that reliably. But you can question one is, it's not in practice actually true that things that are deductive are things that we in fact can be certain about. Mathematicians realize there are errors in their proofs all the time, for instance, and you know, more mundanely, anyone doing a math course makes mistakes. And so even if in a certain sense, mathematical knowledge is deductive, that doesn't actually necessarily mean mathematical knowledge is more certain than inductive knowledge. Are you more certain that Fermat's last theorem is true or that the sun's going to rise tomorrow? I, I know that I'm more confident about the sun because while I'm pretty confident the mathematicians haven't made a mistake, I'm not 100% confident. But that's one half about it. The, the other thing to say is that induction as a model of how we get knowledge outside the spaces where it's completely certain, and this is a, another Papirian sense, isn't necessarily a great map of what the scientific method is. Imagine you set a timer on your cooker and you set a 60-minute timer, and then in every 10 seconds you come into the kitchen and see if the timer's gone off, and then you observe 59 minutes and 50 seconds later, every last time I came into the kitchen, it didn't go off. So I, inductively, I'm very confident it won't go off next 10 seconds. That obviously wouldn't be a good bit of reasoning. That sounds more like a kind of a gambler's kind of reasoning. Yeah, I mean, what's really going on is that one, one has theories, and, and those theories have often have regularities in them. Uh, and sometimes those theories are as simple as this thing's just going to keep happening. But often then we actually have reason not to expect things to carry on the way they were carrying on, precisely because our theories fallibly tell us that we think they probably won't. So l let me get at this in a slightly different way. What would you say is the difference between science and pseudoscience? So that comes back to what we were saying about the scientific method. It, a lot of why Popper cared about the scientific method is precisely to make that demarcation between the two. And his version is to say something like, scientific theories are, are falsifiable, pseudoscientific theories are not falsifiable. But when you start thinking about it a bit, you realize we don't actually throw away our scientific theories as soon as we get evidence against them. Almost always we can hold on to our theories because there'll be some other thing we can change our opinion about. So for instance, the law of gravity isn't really so simply falsifiable just straight off in one go, because even if the planets aren't moving quite the direction we thought they were, then it might be that there's another planet we hadn't noticed, or a cloud of dust, or something like that, pulling it in another direction. Uh, so for instance, uh, in the 19th century, we realized that the outer planets weren't quite moving the way Newton's gravity said they were going to move. Or we could have said, let's throw away Newton's gravity. What we actually said was, look, maybe there's another planet out there. Where would it have to be? We worked out where it would have to be. We looked and we saw the planet Neptune. And that was, that was a progress. We moved, we moved the theory forward, trying to develop the theory and respond to observation and experimental challenges to the theory made the theory better and led to new predictions. And if I wanted to give my sort of one sentence, what's the difference between science and pseudoscience? It's that the process of science is that successive process where the theory is responding to evidence by improving and making newer and stronger predictions. 
Whereas pseudoscience, insofar as it responds to evidence at all, responds by kind of ad hoc changes of the theory to try to finesse away the problems without actually progressing. It's sort of ad hoc and, and post hoc. Yeah, that's if you like. Creationism is a great example. Um, yeah, I mean, creationists will say, look, our theory is as falsifiable um, or as unfalsifiable as evolution. But if you look at the way creationism has evolved as a science, quote science, what it does is some new piece of evidence comes along and the creationists work out how to incorporate that without changing the framework. But the framework itself never changes and no novel predictions turn up that then get tested elsewhere. And then one of the, I think, basic assumptions of creationism is that there are certain levels of complexity that are inherently unexplainable. They must have been created. That's right, yeah. But that's, um, that as a theory doesn't, doesn't in their development lead you very far. It's not, it's not as if creationism starts with that idea and then makes a prediction that says, if you go and look out here, you'll find such and such thing. When it does, you inevitably look and it's not there. And then they say, oh, we'll modify the theory to work around that. Um, and then again, if it makes any, if it makes predictions, those predictions get. So there's maybe this is an example of a joke, but it's a, maybe an example of pseudoscience. A, a man goes to his doctor, and the doctor says, "What's what brings you here today?" And he says, "I'm dead." And he says, "What do you mean you're dead? You're talking to me." He says, "No, I'm really dead." And the doctor says, "If I prick you, will you bleed if you're dead?" And he says, "No, of course not." He pricks the man, and of course the man bleeds. And the man says, "I guess I was wrong. Dead men do bleed." Yeah, it's got some of the same character. Okay. So, and, and maybe another classic example of pseudoscience would be astrology. Mm. And in that case, it's not necessarily making ad hoc or post hoc assumptions, but it's making everything fit by making the predictions broad enough and multitudinous enough that something will stick. I guess astrology covers a multitude of sins. So the kind of um, predictions you used to get in the newspapers, I think, have exactly the character you're giving. I think when astrologers try to do these more detailed predictions, then they're either as vague as can be, or they make some more specific prediction. And then when it turns out wrong, as invariably it's likely to, then they say, ah, but actually that's because we didn't allow for Saturn being in the ascendant, or this is really this thing, but just understood in a different way. Again, it's not the theory isn't sticking its neck out. It's not responding to new evidence by developing the theory in a way that leads to new predictions. And, and I think that the theory probably has a lot of trouble taking into account the shifting of the stars over time. I, at this point, I'm out of depth in my knowledge of astrology. <laughs> okay, which is, all right. It's pretty minimal, but yeah, I would imagine that's a problem. All right, so my next question has to do about, are there sources of knowledge that are not derivable from a strict scientific method that are never, nevertheless legitimate, maybe not as robust? as areas of knowledge that are amenable to the scientific method, but nevertheless still have some validity. And it's not because they're pseudoscience, it's because these are areas that are really difficult to do experiments with. And so examples would be ecology, clinical psychology, education. Of course, education, there are some experiments, but it's really hard to hold all the variables constant. Or another example would be parenting. You're mentioning that you're a parent, so you probably know this, that there is a, a sense, certainly an inner sense, that there are better and worse methods of parenting. Not that there's with precision, but there's probably a range of good parenting, but there's also a range of bad parenting. And, and it's possible to distinguish between the two, to, to distinguish child abuse from, from healthy child rearing. 
to good. So look, there's a Hazelsilly answer to the question. Of course, there are a bunch of routes by which we get knowledge that aren't scientific. For instance, I knew that we were meeting up to have a podcast today. That's, there's lots of mundane information of that kind. So it can be harder than it looks to work out what we have in mind when we talk about knowledge that's not scientific. But we tend to have in mind something like more substantive bodies of information of the kind that science aspires to have. Are there other routes to that? There, I think it gets more complicated. Take history as an example. I I think when, if historians want to say, this is what's happening, this is what happened in such and such period, this is the way, I don't know, the Normandy campaign in World War II played out, then it's clear that there are routes to get knowledge in that framework and that the methods that historians are using are not scientific in the broader sense, but are still valuable. And it's true that when the historians can say useful things about understanding the causes that happen in particular phenomena, they can point at when some things have happened in similar plays a lot of times to wake us up to the idea they might want to pay attention now. So historians can tell us, for instance, that there have been lots of times in the past where a great power has risen and it's often led to war with the established powers. So maybe that's a reason you should pay attention to that kind of thing if you're worried about the rise of China. If historians wanted to go on and say something a bit more systematic, like whenever a great power rises, there's a war, that kind of thing starts becoming the sort of thing where you need to start applying the methods of statistical generalization and things start blurry, it gets blurry as to whether you're really doing science or not. And And I think that blurs into your psychology example, because I think often the issue isn't that something's not scientific, it's just that it is really hard science and so the amount we've managed to know about it is not so much. I, I, th- I think psychology as an academic discipline I'd say is definitely scientific. It's a really hard discipline. Humans are complicated and a lot of what we know, a lot of what we think we know is pretty fallible and a lot of things we thought we knew it turns out we don't know and we don't have anything like the kind of rock solid ideas we have in some of the physical sciences. Parenting's an example that shows that it's hard to, science is hard and expensive and so if you're trying to get information yourself, then you're probably not going to use the scientific method and you're going to take the hit in terms of reliability. So if I'm interested in the best way to get my kids to go to bed in the evening, then to, to get, re- get really reliable scientific data, I need to make sure I'm only changing one parameter at a time. So if I want to stop my kids crying on the, air, on the aeroplane, I want to say, okay, here's about five things that might be causing them to cry. Let's change only one of them and see if they stop crying. Of course, you don't do it as a parent because you're in too much of a rush. So you change all five things. You find, hooray, they stop crying. But scientifically, you messed up because you, know, you don't know reliably which of those five things it was. But you didn't have, you didn't have the resources to do that experiment. So you know, it's real knowledge, but it not, hasn't got the kind of the, the relative solidity that you get. Yeah, it's a kind of pre-science or proto-science. And, and certainly when people talk about like indigenous knowledge of, of the rainforest, let's say, it may not be resting on scientific experiments, but it's resting on keen observation and noticing what works and that sort of thing. And so that it has a certain level of reliability, but maybe not as reliable as something that is amenable to experiments. For instance, there are herbal remedies that have been around for millennia. And so there's an assumption that this is based on keen observation and therefore it must be true. But sometimes it's keen observation that's wrong, and then tr- tradition takes over. And then it just seems tr- true only because it's been regarded as true for so long. Yeah, no, there are lots of examples of that kind of 
societal knowledge that has turned out to be tracking something really important. And it's a great, it's not like a history case, it's a great place to look. Equally, there's a very long standing tradition in Europe that if some unexplained bad thing happened in the village, there's probably a witch and you could find, you should find who she is and burn her. And it turns out that's not actually a good thing. Exactly. Or another one that's a bit more scientific sounding is, is bloodletting with leeches. You know, that was an accepted practice almost worldwide for thousands of years. And my understanding is that maybe, maybe what killed George Washington it was excessive bloodletting for whatever illness. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I think leeches genuinely do have some medical benefit. But yeah, just losing, just taking out loads of blood turns out mostly not to be very helpful. And again, notice that's because having an actual method to test the theory is transformative. If you if you're actually in a situation where you have to say, okay, fine, we'll have this group who we bloodlet and this control group who we don't, and we'll see how we'll, we'll select at random which ones we bloodlet, and we'll see how much difference it makes later. Now you've got the beginning of a route to get some knowledge, but it's quite it's, it's the, the realization that's the way you want to do it is hard one. So l- let's move on now to talk about one of your other interests, which is reductionism versus emergence. So for someone who doesn't know anything about these topics, how would you explain it? They're very much engaged with how it is that we live in an enormously complex world with all sorts of very different things happening in very different places and at very different scales. And yet what we're told by physicists, with some reason to think it's true, is that at the much deeper scale, the world is much, much simpler than that. It's got a a smallish number of different sorts of particles and any given system whether it's the tv screen i'm looking at this minute or me myself or the economy of china ultimately these are things physics seems to say that are doing the things they're doing ultimately because of the movements of the atoms and molecules that comprise the systems that they're about Reduction is the idea that the it really is true that in some sense there's nothing to the world but what physics says there is in the world. In other words, it really is true that all the things that happen in the world happen as a consequence of what the electrons and protons and quarks in deep physics are doing. And emergence is the idea that there are things about the way things behave at high levels that you just can't straightforwardly read off from what's happening in physics. And the philosophical questions I'm interested in is to what extent are these reconcilable? To what extent can we understand the genuine complexity of the world and and, and the genuine ways in which the world seems to do things at large scales that you just don't see at the small scale? How do we reconcile that with the reason to think that indeed at some level so, so in other words, leap, leaping from one level of inquiry to another is, is just that. It's a leap, and it's not easy to map the phenomena from the more basic, quote-unquote, level to the less basic, with the possible exception of physics and chemistry seem to be more strongly related than any other two disciplines. I don't know if you agree with that. But to go from chemistry to biology, for instance, is an enormous leap. And to go from biology to psychology, I think, is also an enormous leap. And then to go from psychology to, let's say, political science or uh, economics is another huge leap. Yeah. Yeah. But notice equally, those those aren't huge leaps. So those are huge leaps. Then the disciplines are also not siloed off. If you're a a biochemist and you're working on 
drug treatments and the way in which various sort of proteins interact and things, and you don't know any chemistry, you're not going to be very successful. And if, if you've got some account, if, if you're theorizing and trying to work out the way, say, animals move, and you're interested in the running patterns of cheetahs, and you don't know a bunch of physics, then you're going to have a problem. So you're, you're absolutely right that it's not even faintly true that, say, we can learn, we can derive all the things we know in biology from the things we know in chemistry. It's also absolutely not true. These are just different separate science, sciences that do their own separate things. They do seem to be kind of richly connected. And there's a sense in which biology answers to chemistry. It can't contradict chemistry, even if one can't learn all the truths of biology or even many of the truths of biology just by thinking about chemistry. So science in its kind of various factions is a little bit similar to modern medicine. In modern medicine, you have a, a lung doctor, a heart doctor, a brain doctor, a skin doctor, a bone doctor. It's all been divided up and people have expertise in one area. Now, of course, after in medical school, you learn the whole body. But if you become a specialist, it's almost as if you have this kind of boundary. And, okay, I'm going to only look what's inside the boundary. And then you have a very few doctors who are generalists and integrated everything. I shouldn't say very few general practitioners do that, but there are very few specialists who are interested in the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy, although there's something more of a an, an orderedness about the disciplines in science that you perhaps don't see in the analogy. There are ways in which your knowledge of the lungs might be relevant to your knowledge of the heart and vice versa. But if you're interested again in something like how how do leopards run, then that's a biology problem for which you need to learn, know a lot of physics. But if you're interested in the physics of some specific system studied at the physics level, you don't tend to have the converse situation where you need the fact about biology effect. I, I don't at all want to say there aren't problems where biology and physics both come in at different levels, but there's a sense in which, because, because in a sense, crudely big things are made of smaller things. And, animals are made of cells and cells are made of molecules, but molecules are made of, made of animals, then that creates a, a sort of extra level of complexity here that isn't perhaps coming out if you've got, if you're studying lots of complex systems at the same level that you're interested. So in a way, sci the sciences are like a, a set of nesting dolls that they, they always, it's a they pretty much agreed upon order that physics is a foundation and then from physics to chemistry, to biology, to psychology, to sociology, and so on, that there's an order. Yeah, that's a popular way of thinking, and I think it's got a lot of truth to it. I think it's a little bit too once and for all, I suppose you might say. I, I think a better, I think it, it, you get a better sense if, if you think system by system. So there's, again, take my random example there. I've, I've, got the, I've got the cheetah, and I want to study the whole cheetah, and that's an animal biology problem. But that's resting on the study of, their, of the cheetah at different, more precise, precise scales, maybe the physiology of the cheetah and the neuroscience of the cheetah and then the fluid dynamics of the blood flow in the cheetah and then at some level the biochemistry of the cheetah cells and then the microphysics below that. And then if I had a different system, I'd have a sort of different decomposition and the cheetah itself is a component that I need to understand if I want to understand the ecosystem of the Serengeti. But there are other components I need to understand. There are other animals, but there's also weather patterns and gravity over the whole framework. And so you can see each of those again arresting on other systems at a lower scale. So think maybe in terms of a tree with and getting finer and the thick branches are system, gen, rather general features about systems that are true of any system 
that, for instance, is made of atoms, and then there's something that's true of any system that's descended from cats, and, and so on. And then the institutional sciences cut across that. Then you can say, well, particular bits in the tree that physicists tend to study, and these are the bits that biochemists tend to study. And to some extent, those will sit in layers, but they, they don't necessarily have to. What's really going on is the world is organized in such a way that complicated systems often can be described at lots of different levels. So I have a different way of asking the question. Is it a mistake for other fields of study to emulate physics? Because I think physics has a kind of mystique to it as as being the most solid of the sciences. And I think in the social sciences in particular, there's, there's a desire to have the prestige that the hard sciences have and yet have difficulty doing so. Okay, so I think largely you should do what works. But the, the secret about physics is that physics is as successful as it is because physics studies very simple systems. The, the way the physics studies those systems in ways that are very advanced and mathematically abstract, and those systems themselves are incredibly alien and really disconnected from things that we can get an intuitive grasp of, but they're not very complicated. The human body example is ridiculously more complex than any system of physicists study. A classic example you learn as an undergraduate in physics is the hydrogen atom. It's got one electron and one proton. And even when you have an atom that's more complicated than that in physics, you're already starting to use various approximations. You can't solve the problem exactly. And so physics has done so well in understanding the systems it studied. It's managed to get such really detailed, quantitative understanding of those systems by precisely because those systems are not very complicated. And even in physics itself, methods in one sub-area aren't at all like methods in another sub-area. If I'm interested in studying the structure of the Milky Way galaxy, that's, that really is a complicated system. It's not as complicated as the human body, but it's way more complicated than hydrogen atom. The kind of incredibly precise, mathematically deep, enormously accurate prediction methods that work for the structure of molecules, or small molecules, don't work for something as complicated as the Milky Way. And so you see galactic astrophysicists use very different and again, you use methods that are successful. If your science is proceeding in a way that makes hypotheses, lets you test those hypotheses, lets you adjust the hypotheses in response to the tests, and lets you do it in a way that, that means you're making novel claims that you can test them, which are often coming out right, well, now you're doing things well. If borrowing the methods of physics is letting you do that, great. If it's not, then maybe don't borrow the methods of physics. So it's interesting that in order to study the simplest level, it requires enormously complex machinery <laughs> with the colliders and accelerators. It's it's almost funny in a way that, yeah, we're, we're dealing with them at the simplest level, but let's spend umpteen billions of dollars to, to get at it. The issue is that thing is simple, but it's also really high, really small. And <laughs> exactly. Really high energy. Comparably simple systems that are bigger tend to be easier to study. But again, that's the thing. Physics... Physics studies very alien regimes. Physics has gone, precisely because it's been so successful, has gone very far from things that we can get at ordinarily with methods close to our unaided senses. Even in the early 20th century, fundamental physics experiments were being done in individual rooms in individual labs and were probing what at the time was the deepest structure of of matter that people could get to. Um, These days, we understand the, the, the basics of physics at those levels. It doesn't mean there aren't things we can't understand at those levels, but they're usually complicated things. So we'd really, for instance, to be able to build superconductors 
that transmit electricity without resistance at room temperature. If you can do that, then the Nobel Prize and the billion dollars of startup funding is waiting for you. And we don't have to do that. Um, you can do that in the lab because the system is not super alien. It's an ordinary human scale. It just, it's just complicated. And again, complexity is really hard to work around. So those, those, are, those are places where we... This kind of goes to what I was saying about physics is not just a single subject. The, the solid state physics of superconductors is, is studying a genuinely complicated system, even if it's much simpler than biochemical systems. And so the kind of methods that we use in CERN, which broadly are smash one thing into another thing as hard as you can and see what comes out, that doesn't work so well for studying superconductors. And certainly doesn't work well for studying people. You, you don't want to... So it seems to me that a significant scientific advances have the capacity to usher in profound changes in how we see ourselves, which is an interesting kind of, I don't know if it's called a side effect exactly, but of doing science. For instance, Copernicus and Galileo decentering our place in the universe, telescopes and astrophysics revealing our insignificance, at least in size and the vastness of the universe. Einstein with relativity, loosening us from the mooring of an assumption of an absolute time and space. There's a kind of capacity, I think, to really change the way each of us sees ourselves. Uh, and another future example would be if, if we eventually discover uh, extraterrestrial life or even extraterrestrial intelligent life, that's going to be another kind of decentering of ourselves that we're not unique. We're not the be-all and end-all of, of existence. Yes, although I think if we discover intelligent alien life, then the the kind of abstract shift in the, uh, in, in our sense of our place in the cosmos is probably the least of our worries. Depending on whether they're coming for us, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I often wonder, and if we just do discover other planets with intelligent life, does that mean that each of these planets has a Jesus, a Moses, a, a, a Buddha, and a Muhammad? And if not, what does that do for the view of religion? I think it's that, going to be a that, challenge. That, that, that one is above my pay grade. Okay. All right. So with quantum mechanics, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about in the, in the last third of this interview, we're, we're forced to confront seemingly absurd foundations for the most basic level of science for, for physics, which is really crazy. What, what comes after that? You, know, you start out by thinking of science as providing a firm foundation for understanding of, of how the world works, and Newtonian physics being a prime example of that. And, and then suddenly, oh, wait a minute, the way things work is really beyond our ability to intuitively grasp it, and, and it seems weird and strange. The word intuitively slipped into that sentence, and I think that's interesting. I think it's absolutely right that our science should allow us to understand what's going on. But I absolutely don't think it should allow us to intuitively grasp what's going on because the world doesn't really care what our intuitions are. If you like, we, it's almost the opposite. We should actually expect our intuitions to be unreliable in matters of deep physics because our intuitions were developed by natural selection to help us avoid being eaten by saber-toothed cats on the plains of primeval Africa. Um, so they're, they're very well suited for dealing with what philosophers sometimes call middle-sized dry goods, stuff at the scales and time scales that humans deal with. So your, your intuitions as to what a rock's going to do if it gets thrown in your direction, or your intuitions as to what to do if a large animal is growling at you, those are excellent. And if, if your intuitions were not reliable guides to the truth, then you'd have been eaten. And so the animals that survived had intuitions that were reliable guides to the truth in that regime. 
But having good intuitions about what's happening at the scale of atoms and molecules wasn't particularly relevant to our ancestors. So unless you believe in a god who implanted those ideas into our minds, which you, you smart people from Descartes want to believe that, but I'm not one of them, then you wouldn't expect that our intuitions about deep physics should be in any way tracking what's actually happening. Yeah, this I think relates back to one of your other interests, interests which is realism. Mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people assume that science is telling us what reality is at deeper and deeper levels. And, and other scientists say, no, we don't really care about whether we're depicting reality itself because that's impossible anyway. We're really interested in, in whether a scientific theory makes accurate predictions. And, and that's very, I don't know, if unsexy is a word. It's not so appealing. Okay, so science makes all these predictions, but I want to know what's real. And that's a real tension, I think, between those two points of view. So, so you will sometimes have, so the, the second position you call sometimes gets called anti-realism or empiricism. You will sometimes get scientists who will say, all we care about is whether our theories make accurate predictions. We're not interested in it beyond that. But in my experience, it's something scientists really only say when they're on the defensive or being got at by annoying philosophers or annoying questions of any, of any kind. I, I think it's extremely rare that that actually describes the way scientists think and conduct and write. You, 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 you talked earlier about the, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. The way that was described to the public and the way scientists themselves talk about it is we're using this to try to discover the deepest structure of reality. But if you imagine the funding conversation between the, the scientist who's an anti-realist and the government funding agency, it gets a bit absurd. It goes something like, government minister, why should we build this really expensive thing? Will it tell us about the deep structure of reality? Scientists, no, that's naive. Scientific theories aren't there to tell us about the deep structure of reality. They're just there to help us predict the results of experiments. And the the government minister says, okay, so if we build this device, what experiments will it help us predict the results of? And they say, it'll help us predict the results of particle physics experiments. So the scientist says, so get, let's get this straight. You want me to build the Large Hadron Collider so we can check that the Large Hadron Collider does what you think the Large Hadron Collider is going to do. That's hard to sell as a justification. And they likewise don't dig up rocks because they think rocks are interesting in themselves. They dig them up because they want to know about dinosaurs. People don't, don't come up with theories about stars because they want to know what bits of photoscopic film in front of telescopes are doing. They, they build telescopes and put photogra- bits of photo photofilm in front of them because they want to know about stars and galaxies. I think the whole way we do science and talk about it and the way scientists themselves talk about it is just, just writes into itself the idea that what science is doing is telling us about the world and telling us how the world works. If I can just try my best to summarize where this fits into physics, mm-hmm. is that there's some controversy about how is it possible for a particle such as a photon to be in two places at once. And it seems to be in two places at once until it's measured and then it's in one place and not the other. And this comes from the uh, kind of wave particle duality of things like photons and electrons. And it's all, this is probably about as as counterintuitive as it gets. And it's not really established what's going on. There are multiple interpretations. And the one that you're interested in, David, is the many worlds version, also called the Everett interpretation of quantum theory. So is that pretty accurate, what I've said so far? Yes, pretty much. What I suppose I would say is that the theory we have, if you take it literally, seems to say 
that things can be in two places at the same time. Um, and it seems to rely on that as part of how it makes calculations. And if it was just microscopic things like electrons that can be in two places at the same time or doing two things at the same time, then you might say, okay, like, like I was saying earlier, the microscopic world is really unintuitive. This is get on with it. But the theory also seems to say that if you make a measurement to see where the electron is and the electron is in two places at the same time, then your measurement device somehow gives two answers at the same time. So if the needle on your measurement device is pointing left if the electron is on the left side of the room and right if the electron's on the right side of the room, well, if the electron's on the left side and the right side at the same time, the needle's going to be pointing left and right at the same time. The, the really extreme version of this is Schrodinger's kind of unethical thought experiment where if the needle's on the left side, you kill your cat, and if it's on the right side of the cat, it lives another day. In which case, if the electron's here and there at the same time, the cat's alive and dead at the same time. And cats don't seem to do that kind of thing. So the theory is fixed up in an ad hoc way in the kind of traditional textbook treatments where you say suddenly, as soon as you look at the system, it stops being in two places. And, and one ins interpretation is that it, the wave function collapses, whatever that means. Right, that collapse of the wave function is exactly the kind of textbook cookup I'm talking about. The collapse of the wave function is just the mathematical way of saying, as soon as you look at something, it's not being here and there at the same time, it just suddenly is here or there. So, so you, you see, in your interpretation, you, you want to follow the logic all the way to its conclusion, which is if it's in, if it's in two places, maybe it is, maybe both of them are true, just not all in the same plane of existence. That there's a splitting, a splitting of reality each time? Kind of, that makes it sound as if the splitting is something we add to the theory. The idea of the many worlds theory is just that if you take the theory seriously, that splitting is going on all the time according to the theory. So you go back to where we came in, the theories says things can be doing two things at the same time. It looks as if things aren't doing two things at the same time. And so we say the theory must be wrong when you change the theory. Or we need to stop being scientific realists and stop asking what the world is. And the Everett interpretation is just to say, suppose the theory was just completely true and was telling us about the world. What would it be like if the world was a world in which things were doing two things at the same time? And the claim is, if you think carefully about it, what it's like to be in a world where two things are happening at the same time is there's two branches of reality. There's, there's, a, there, there's a chunk of reality where one thing's happening and a chunk of reality where the other thing's happening. So if, 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 if the cat's alive and dead at the same time and I look at it, your intuition is I see a weird half alive, half dead cat. But that's not what the physics says. The physics says I'll see a live cat and I'll see a dead cat at the same time, or rather at the same time, the cat will be alive and I'll see it alive. And the cat will be dead and, and I'll see it dead. And then if I, if you ask me if the cat's alive or dead, then at the same time, you will hear me say it's alive and you'll hear me say it's dead. And if you tell your audience about the cat, then at the same time, the whole audience will hear that the cat's alive and the whole audience will hear the cat's dead. And pretty soon, at the same time, the whole world will be as if the cat was alive and the whole world will be as the cat's dead. And by the time we're talking about the whole world, it really, it, we really are just talking about separate bits of reality being described by the theory, a live cat bit of reality and a dead cat bit of reality. But none of this is stuff we've added to the theory, so it says, the many worlds theory. This is just stuff that is in the theory if you just take the theory seriously. But, but are, are you talking about literally a splitting of existence, that you have one existence where the cat's alive and one existence where the cat is dead? I'm talking about there being a complex system, the world, and the system is doing two very two completely independent things in parallel. It's doing a 
being structured to describe a living cat thing and the being structured to describe a dead cat thing. At the fundamental level, there's no splitting at all. But, but are, are there different sort of timelines in a way? I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So if you imagine that space and time are just a background against which science plays out, then no, there wouldn't be different timelines. There'd just be independent, non-interacting things going on in the same timeline. Actually, space and time aren't backgrounds against which things play out. According to the theory of relativity, then space and time are themselves dynamical, themselves things that respond to the presence of matter. So in practice, you would get a splitting of space and time when you measure the when you measure whether the cat's alive or dead. We don't, fully working out the math of a theory of that kind is called the problem of quantum gravity and it's not fully worked out. So we don't fully know how to, how to understand that. And by, by we as scientists generally, I don't mean. So maybe a different way to ask this is, are we talking about different dimensions in a sense? That sounds science fiction-y. Only in the science fiction way people use dimensions. That's a sort of picturesque way people talk. There's no, there's no fundamental splitting of the so that dimensions one, two, and three of the cat being alive and dimensions four, five, six of the cat being dead. Right, right. Yeah, so w- w- one question I have about that is that if you have the splitting of dimensions or however you want to put it, how do they then interact to create an interference pattern if they're in different dimensions? So this goes back to why that metaphor is not always super helpful. The, the, the splitting is not something that you're imposing fundamentally. If, if space-time, if, it's an, if there's enough of a what a physicist call a superposition, the two things at once, but space-time pays attention, then you'll start getting a splitting of space-time. And as you say, it's pretty hard to bring that back around again. Uh, but as long as it's small enough, you then you can have these two things going on at the same time, and they can indeed come and interfere with each other. I guess a metaphor that might be a bit helpful. So it used to be that physicists thought that there might be a thematic called shadow matter, that there might be shadow electrons and shadow protons, and the shadow electrons would interact with the shadow protons just the same way electrons interact with protons. So you could make shadow hydrogen atoms and shadow water out of the arrangements of these things, and maybe shadow cats and shadow dogs and shadow planets. But the shadow stuff and the ordinary stuff, it would be in the same place, but the shadow stuff wouldn't interact with the ordinary stuff, except in somewhat special circumstances. That's what's going on here. There's a branching, there's live cat stuff and there's dead cat stuff. And the live cat stuff and the dead cat stuff mostly don't interact with each other, but they're not fundamentally in different universes. So the shadow electrons and the shadow cat are not more solid somewhere else? No, well, I suppose solid is, is a relative term, isn't it? What, what does solid mean? It means if I hit something, then it doesn't deform, it just bounces off. So if I take a shadow rock and I hit it with another shadow rock, they bounce off. Just like if I take a rock and I hit it with another rock, they bounce off. So the shadow rocks are solid in just the same way the rocks are solid. But if I, if I hit a shadow rock with an ordinary rock, they just pass through each other because shadow matter and ordinary matter. I mean, people don't now believe there's such a thing as shadow, ma- shadow matter, but it's a relatively easy idea to get your head around. At, the, at least at a slightly metaphorical level, that's what's going on with the live cat stuff and the, and the dead cat stuff. So in, in listening to a lecture of yours on YouTube about this topic, you spend a fair amount of time talking about randomness and distinguishing between apparent randomness and real randomness. Apparent would be, for instance, dice that have six sides. We think of that as random, but it's in fact well-determined what's going to happen if you could 
elucidate all the forces on the die as you throw it, it's going to land one particular way. It's not going to land one of six ways. It's going to land a specific way. But because we can't practically spell out all of the forces, it's as if it's random, but it's not actually random. And it seems to me that in the many worlds interpretation, that it's a way of eliminating randomness in this world, that there's 100% certainty that all the possibilities happen rather than some percentage of possibility. There is, but that doesn't get us away from trying to have some understanding of how randomness is going on for us. Because it certainly seems to us as if the atom might decay or might not decay and it's random whether the atom decays or doesn't decay. And indeed, one of the big philosophical problems with many world theory is just how to understand that kind of apparent randomness for individuals within a world with the fact that, as you say, for the universe as a whole, there isn't any randomness. There's just branching into into copies where all the different things happen. That's in, I don't know which YouTube video we're thinking of here, but I don't know if the role of dice is, is genuinely random or not. Quantum processors are in some sense genuinely random. From the many worlds point of view, they're not random from the sort of God's eye view, but they're random for people in the world. Tossing a coin is really not random. We're genuinely true. We have good reason to think this, that if you knew the speed at which the coin is thrown, you could predict how it lands. And there are machines that toss coins and they land the same way every time. I don't know about dice. Small quantum effects get magnified up. It might be that it happens with dice. It might not be. The weather is an example of something which definitely is quantum random on scales of a few months it's not you know there's, there's some quantum chance that it'll be there'll be snow on december 25th in pittsburgh and there's some quantum chance there won't and from four where are we three and a half months away then we can't know it's not just that we de- that if we can measure the atmosphere more carefully we'd know it's that there'll genuinely be quantum events that get magnified up so that in some futures or from many worlds we're putting it in some future branches it's snowing in pittsburgh in four months time so it sounds like you're not giving much solace to Einstein, who really did not like randomness. You're thinking of Einstein's God does not play dice quote. Einstein, as I, I know Einstein expert, Einstein's misunderstood on that quote, I think. Einstein didn't have a problem, or not much of a problem, with randomness in a well-controlled scientific theory. The problem he had was this idea of a sort of unconstrained, when you look at the system, he thought that was a an uncomfortable overlay on a well-behaved physics. I think if you gave Einstein a nice, clean, well-defined set of differential equations and it just happened to be what physicists call stochastic differential equations that have probabilities in, I think Einstein would probably be fine with that. That said, Einstein said a lot of things and more or less any any, any scientific view is, or any, any view on how to think about science can be defended by some quote from Einstein. In this case, I could be wrong. I think this is a a good place to end on. So thank you so much, David Wallace, a philosopher of science at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in the philosophy of physics. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thanks for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.